Do you enjoy listening to On the Ear but wish you could earn ASHA CEUs for it? Start today. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of audio courses on demand with an average of 19 new audio courses released each month. And here's the best part. Each episode earns you ASHA continuing ed credits. Oh, no, wait. This is the best part. As a listener of On the Ear, you can receive $20 off an annual subscription when you use code EAR21. Just head to SpeechTherapyPD.com to sign up and use code EAR21, E-A-R-2-1, for $20 off your annual subscription. You're listening to On the Ear, an audiology podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Dr. Dakota Sharp, AUDCCCA, audiologist, clinical professor, and lifelong learner. While I primarily work with pediatric cochlear implants and hearing aids, I am absolutely intrigued by the many areas of audiology and communication in general. This podcast aims to explore the science of hearing, balance, and communication with a variety of experts in hopes of equipping you to better serve your patients, colleagues, and students. So let's go. We are live and on the ear, brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. In the world of cochlear implants, appropriate expectations for recipients are critically important. Research suggests that other than audiologic factors, clinicians see realistic patient expectations as one of the most important factors in deciding whether to move forward with a cochlear implant. But how do we accurately assess patient expectations? Today's guest has crafted a tool to assist us in the process and ultimately improve our assessment of patient outcomes. Dr. Teddy McCracken, MD, is the director of the Skull Base Center and medical director of the cochlear implant program in the Department of Otolaryngology and Head and Neck Surgery at the Medical University of South Carolina. Dr. McCracken was born in Virginia and moved to Charleston to attend the College of Charleston. He received his medical degree from the Medical University of South Carolina and completed his residency at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. Afterward, he moved to L.A. for a fellowship in otology and neurotology skull-based surgery at the House Ear Clinic. Dr. McCracken's clinical practice is focused on comprehensive management of ear, hearing, balance, and skull-based disorders in adults and children. Dr. McCracken has published a comprehensive neurotology textbook and has written over 100 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters. His research interests focus on the development and application of novel measures to evaluate outcomes in individuals with hearing loss and cochlear implants in order to improve patient results. His work is so critical for a lot of you listeners out there who are audiologists and speech-language pathologists, and we're so grateful to have Dr. McCracken here. Just a couple of quick financial disclosures. I'm the host of On the Ear and receive compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com, and Dr. McCracken received compensation for his contributions to this presentation. We're so grateful to have you here, Dr. McCracken. Teddy, can I call you Teddy? Yes, absolutely, Dakota. Awesome. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Of course, of course. Now, like I was telling you beforehand, this is our first time having an ENT on the podcast, kind of a critical aspect of audiological care. And the ENT is definitely a big part of what we do as audiologists. So I'm just so grateful you agreed to join me for this. No, no, it's a real honor. Awesome. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm really curious. So we're both from Virginia, which is cool. We've briefly talked about this in the past. I'm curious what brought you into the world of cochlear implants specifically, and why you decided to go down that route of being an otolaryngologist. Yeah, so kind of in medicine, you know, kind of one of the big decision trees is whether you go into kind of a surgical subspecialty or a surgical specialty of surgery or medicine, kind of two big decision points. And then I was clear I wanted to do something more procedural, more surgical. And really, my interactions with the neurotology team at MUSC many years ago were really foundational in my pursuing ENT in general. And then kind of as I moved throughout ENT, just kind of became more and more drawn to kind of ear anatomy, ear physiology, ear surgeries, and the impact that those surgeries had on individuals' lives. I mean, there's nothing cooler than a cochlear implant, right? You have someone who has extremely poor hearing, not getting a lot of benefit from a hearing aid. You give them a cochlear implant, and we'll probably talk more about this at the end. But, you know, on average, people have an incredible response, and it's a life-changing device, right? It's, It's one of the only kind of neural prostheses we have like this available for patients. So it's just, an, I mean, to have like a surgery you do, you turn it on, you're doing electrical stimulation, and you're having a direct impact on that patient's everyday life with something that's kind of, you know, essentially while they're 
awake and while they have it on, it's kind of continuously stimulating the auditory nerve. It's just a fascinating thing. So that was kind of what brought me into it. That's really, really cool. It's interesting to hear that specifically cochlear implants and how they work is something that really fascinates you. I know otolaryngology is such a big umbrella. There's so many different ways to practice that, both, I guess, like in medicine and in surgery. So it's really cool that you were drawn specifically to the idea of, I mean, I know you do a lot of things other than cochlear implants, but I definitely know that's a big part of your practice. I'm curious, was there an early experience or anything like that that really made you more interested in cochlear implants and hearing loss specifically under that bigger umbrella of otology and neurotology? Yeah, I mean, I think from, from an early uh, uh, part of my career, you know, it was pretty obvious to me the how what an incredible impact hearing loss has on individuals' life and kind of how comprehensive that impact is, and not just from a you know, obviously a communication standpoint, but kind of the more broader implications of that hearing loss, the social isolation, emotional distress, the impact on relationships. I mean, to me, it was just a um, it was such a broad impact on these individuals' lives um, that was kind of, and, and then I'm like, look, now we have something that uh, is available, right? That is uh, commonly um, uh, implanted that can, you know, have, have really help that. And I think, Hearing aids, I think hearing aids are, are um, extremely important and they're they're exciting in their own right. But I mean, you know, they're they're doing like a, a bit of lifting, but the amount of lifting that cochlear implantation has to do um, is just so great. And you know, there being that that surgical element to it, and it's 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 just beautiful anatomy, you know, as well. It's, it's an elegant procedure, um, and it, it kind of it, it hit on all cylinders for me. Yeah. Absolutely. So it sounds like from the beginning, you've been interested in that bigger picture of hearing loss as it relates to someone's daily life and their quality of life specifically. So I guess, is that that interest in quality of life specifically something you were intrigued by early on? Or did that kind of come later with more exposure to cochlear implant patients? Yeah, I think it came uh, probably later with um, kind of more exposure, you know, just sitting down and talking with patients, you know, it's amazing, you know, the stories they tell of, you know, you're kind of early on your uh, cochlear implant um, uh, potential candidates, you know, talking to them about, you know, their um, everyday experiences. It, it, it's very eye-opening. But I mean, I think the kind of the measurement of that um, quality of life and the impact of the implant on individuals kind of overall quality of life and their kind of real world functional abilities. Um, I, the fascination for me, I mean, I've always been kind of a, a numbers nerd and, but for me, and a measurement kind of nerd, and for me, the, the idea that we had a, a outcome measure, um, speech recognition ability, that just did not strongly correlate with people's in real-world experiences was very eye-opening to me. And I saw that as just an incredible gap in kind of how we practice cochlear implant care. And, and for those who don't know, in research by us and others have basically demonstrated that it's somewhere between 4 to 16% of patients' self-reported real-world communication ability can be described by speech recognition ability. And that's kind of words, uh, sentences, sentences and background noise. And uh, so there's just not a strong correlation between how a patient does in an audio booth, even with background noise, and those individuals' real-world experiences. So for me, that, that was kind of the, the really the ignition for my research piece was the, the, the discrepancy that we were um, – that I was seeing there. I'm curious. So do you feel like that correlation, does it go both ways? I feel like personally what I've seen in clinic, it certainly can, right? You might have somebody who's a star performer speech reception wise, but then isn't like super happy with their experience. Maybe it didn't live up to their expectations, but on the polar opposite end, I could have somebody who gets their cochlear implant has barely any speech perception abilities at all, but they're just so overjoyed at their sound awareness that they get from their device that they're very happy with their device with really poor. So I guess that correlation that you're talking about is the data kind of showing us in both directions it can be sort of a poor predictor. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, what I what I'll say is maybe not because um, I think we um, we often conflate kind of these terms like of, of quality of life and patient reported outcome measures and functional abilities all as one. So I think we're kind of talking about different things. So I think we really don't see you know patients who score extremely low on speech recognition ability. Like for our uh, cochlear implant quality of life instrument, we don't see them scoring particularly high you know, on the communication domain, right? I mean, you may see other things like an environmental domain, but, you know, there's got to be a baseline 
speech recognition ability of to kind of get over the hurdle. Now, when you do have some degree or some decent speech, you know, you can argue about what that is probably, but what speech recognition ability is, then you see a huge, vast differences in how that's applied in the real world. Now, what I'll say is one of my favorite patients we had as part of our focus groups was a sweet lady who uh, she had had meningitis and had bi- and went from kind of completely normal hearing to bilateral, you know, complete hearing loss, you know, profound, profound. And she performed with her cochlear implants. She had 0% word recognition, right, on every test. And, you know, by all, you know, you look at that and say, well, that was a failure. What did we really gain? But she was over the moon excited about her cochlear implant because it took her kind of into the real world. She could hear sound. So before her cochlear implant, she stayed in her apartment all the time. She didn't feel comfortable going out and walking her dog, which was one of the most important things in her life was getting out and walking. And then she had a cochlear implant. She said she could hear traffic. She could hear kind of people on the street. So she felt comfortable and she started going back out in the, you know, the world and kind of interacting with people once again. So, I mean, I think we need, you know, you kind of need to talk about degrees of success with cochlear implantation, but that's an obvious one where hugely impactful in her life. But again, as speech recognition scores go, you know, you could say, well, there's no improvement. Yeah, I think that's a perfect example of that discrepancy. That's an interesting point for people who might not be in the cochlear implant space as clinicians who might see someone come in who's like no response, 0% or has a a hearing history where you would say, well, I mean, technically on paper, you're a cochlear implant candidate, but what would you really get out of this thing? You know what I mean? And they don't know stories about with patients with similar experiences to this, right? So I think that's a really helpful reminder. I'm wondering, were there specific clinical cases that made you want to explore this quality of life, like these subcategories further? What, What kind of like kicked off this research project? Yeah, I mean, the kicking off was kind of reading the literature, kind of showing this discrepancy, right, between what we're kind of holding up as the holy grail of our outcome measure and the fact that it kind of didn't really agree with patients' real-world experiences. And then, I mean, where those kind of the different domains within our instruments came from is we did a series of three focus groups with cochlear implant users, and patients were the ones who actually developed all of the items that are included in the instrument, developed you know what the domains were, you know, we kind of categorized things and then did all sorts of fancy psychometric testing to confirm that those domains were valid. And so I, I tell researchers this all the time is that when it comes to the research and the development of these instruments, I kind of really undervalued on the onset the focus groups. I was kind of like, oh, we know what's going to be in these instruments. There's all these different, you know, proms out there. People have asked all these different questions. But then it was actually like completely foundational to everything that's come since then. I mean, the, the responses we got from them, and just for people who aren't aware, the kind of different domains for the instrument are communication, entertainment, emotional, environmental, listening effort, and social, right? And so I mean, things like listening effort, things like environmental sound, awareness, like those are, you know, are things that we don't really measure and really don't talk about at all. And a lot of these other areas right? As a, from emotional, social, these are things we kind of generally talk about patients. So talk to patients about, but it's something we really have the capacity to prove to really measure on a routine basis. But all of those came from those focus groups and it was patients. And, it, and so we're the first instrument to actually do that. And the cochlear implant world is actually to have those conversations with patients and let them be kind of the sources for what's included in the instruments, which I think it provides a lot of power And it's really kind of gotten us to the functional staging system, all the things that I think are pretty exciting that we're doing now. I mean, none of them would have been possible without having the instrument be a meaningful outcome measure. And and by meaningful, meaning meaningful from a patient's perspective. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's really interesting that that's where the idea, like, or I guess maybe not the idea, but the questions on the questionnaire originated from is from actual input from cochlear implant recipients. I think that is an amazing place to start. Going from there, what were sort of some of the next steps? I mean, I can't even imagine the steps that go into creating a questionnaire that then can be utilized for like, I mean, I don't know that you would call it like objective data purposes, but for reasons that you can use more scientifically and in a research sense, who else was on the team that helped develop this to help make this a a tool that's utilized by more clinicians than maybe just your own center? Yeah, this is a true team science research collaboration. So myself, 
Judy Dubno, who probably needs no introduction for many of you, but one again of the great minds in uh, hearing research. Craig Veloso, who is the director of occupational therapy at MUSC. He's a psychometrician. Oh, cool. And so uh, I don't even remember how we crossed paths, but we kind of were looking for basically exactly him. We came across for one of these, I think it was one of these research searches on campus to find collaborators. And then his postdoc, Brittany Hand, who is a occupational therapist and a PhD, who's also a psychometrician and a methodologist. She's now at the Ohio State University. We've maintained a collaboration with her. And so the process starts with developing your items from the focus groups. And the items by these, we mean like kind of the question stems that are included in the instrument. And then we kind of vet them with a separate group of cochlear implant users to make sure they understand what they mean. They can repeat back to us what we think they mean. At that point, you have this kind of huge item pool of questions to be included in the final instruments. And then it goes, you know, extensive psychometric testing. So, you know, factor analyses, item response theory, the psychometric analyses kind of, again, were very foundational kind of the work that came later. But what that basically does is it makes sure that the items that you're including in your instruments cover the ability range of your population and make sure you kind of you align individual ability levels with the difficulty of the individual items. And so you basically get a big menu of items for every domain and, and, and you confirm that all the domains are unidimensional and only measuring one construct. And then with, at the end of the day, you, what you get is this basically menu of items and you know which items are best at measuring patients who have a really high ability level. And you have, you know, you have an understanding of which items are better at testing patients at the lowest ability level and then everything in between. So then what you do is you kind of start with, you know, 101 items and then you kind of pare it down and select items that cover the ability spectrum are really good at differentiating patient ability levels. And that got us to kind of our 35 item instrument. It's kind of like you get this wonderful menu and select the best items that patients came up with. And then they get you to your kind of our 35 CIQOL 35 profile, which measures patient outcomes in the six domains that I mentioned before. And then we also developed a 10 item global instrument, which is kind of more of a global assessment. It doesn't provide any domain specific information. Then the next step is you have to validate it. So then we put it against the NCIQ, the Jimin Cochlear Implant Questionnaire, and against the QE3, the Health Utility Index Mark III. And to compare the psychometric properties and without going into too much of it, it, perform, it outperformed both of those, you know, on the reliability testing. And that's what gets you your final instrument. That's four years of my life in five minutes there. Yeah. <laughs> Did, so you guys are kind of like reaching ahead for that now where it's basically ready to be distributed? Like, is this something people can access and utilize? Yeah, it's free to download. You have to fill out kind of a user agreement that you're not going to do certain things with it. But yeah, if you go education.musc.edu backslash CIQOL, and if you just search, I think CIQOL, on my Google, at least it brings me there to the website where you could download it for free and there's a scoring manual and there's automated scoring versions of it available. Would you mind giving me like a couple of examples of things that would be in like each of those six domains? Yeah, so... For example, in the communication domain, some of these are kind of fairly obvious, but again, the wording of these items matters from a measurement standpoint. So some items that were similarly worded were thrown out because some versions performed better on a consistent basis. But, you know, from kind of the easiest items in the communication domain would be, you know, I am able to have a conversation in a quiet place without asking the other person to repeat themselves. Getting a little bit more difficult would be I can hear and understand without looking at the person speaking. And then kind of the most difficult item in that domain would be I can follow the conversation in a group of five people in a crowded restaurant when I cannot see everyone. Got it. And is it using like a Likert scale? Yep. It goes, yeah, never, rarely, sometimes, often, and always. Got it. And then, you know, kind of go through, you know, kind of the emotional domain. My hearing loss makes me feel inadequate. I become frustrated when I cannot follow a conversation. Then kind of going to the entertainment domain. I'm able to enjoy music. Music sounds clear and natural to me. Environmental domain, everyday sounds, birds chirping, rain, car horns, etc. are clear to me. I'm able to hear cars approaching in traffic. Then kind of moving on to kind of the listening effort. I can easily have a conversation in a noisy place, restaurant, party, store. I have to concentrate when having a conversation with strangers in a noisy place, again, for the listening effort. In the social domain, I have the confidence to socialize. I avoid social situations due to my hearing loss. I feel left out when I'm with a group of people due to my hearing loss. 
And so the item response theory psychometrics, the nicest thing about it is that you actually know how all of these individual items perform with different users. So if someone's kind of a high user, is reporting kind of always able to endorse a certain activity, we know how each item interacts with that individual. So what we end up creating, and we have our cochlear implant quality of life functional stating system is coming out. It's been accepted. It should be coming out in the very near future in the laryngoscope. It was my trilogical society thesis, so I'm glad it's behind me. But... <laughs> We have, we have these wonderful Congrats. graphs. Yeah, thanks. We have these wonderful graphs, and it actually shows kind of the hierarchic ability level for each of these items. And then you can kind of look at the different response patterns. So if, if someone scores, let's say, a 50 on the communication domain, I mean, that really doesn't have any real inherent meaning, right? You know that zero is the worst, 100 is the best, so it's somewhere in the middle. But you don't really know what kind of functional abilities are associated with that. And so the cochlear implant quality of life functional staging system, what it's done is actually look at the response pattern. It's a very reliable response pattern for these items for individuals. And you can actually say, look, a score of 50 is associated with these responses. So someone who has a score of 50 is able to do X, Y, and Z is not able to do this, this, and this. And so for each domain, so the communication domain has five stages in it. And it kind of goes through kind of from one being the lowest ability level to five to the high, highest ability level. And then we have for all, all other domains actually have three stages. And that's just from a, a measurement standpoint. That's all they were, that's all that kind of patients were distributed into. But it gives us a new way of kind of discussing outcomes with patients, of clinicians kind of knowing what individual patients' abilities are by looking at a score. And we can actually start to direct therapy based on the staging system because we know what the barriers are for individuals to like say from go to stage two to a stage three and those are very different than someone trying to go from stage three to stage four so it gets back to the kind of the rehabilitation model of treating patients at the area where they're having the most difficult and this is very common in physical therapy occupational therapy you know this is what they do on a routine basis but it's kind of been lost with cochlear implant care and hearing care in general but this is actually an evidence base where we can kind of get back to it. But also, it's a way of kind of discussing outcomes with patients, the potential patient outcomes. And as part of all of the psychometric testing we've done, validity testing, we have data on 705 cochlear implant users from across the United States. So we have a 30 cochlear implant center consortium who kind of help recruit patients for all these studies because all these psychometric analyses take a ton of patients to be able to kind of build these models. But we had all these data on 705 patients and cochlear implant users. And these are all people with at least 12 months experience with their cochlear implants. Your routine cochlear implant patient, not SS, not single-sided deafness, you know, not some big asymmetric hearing loss, but kind of your traditional cochlear implant bilateral hearing loss patient. And we can then kind of talk about real-world outcomes, and we know the percentage breakdown, right? So we know from these 705 patients, we kind of have essentially developed normative data, right, for a cochlear implant users' functional ability. And instead of focusing on things like, well, the average person gets 60% word recognition, and not really knowing what that means kind of in a real-world setting, we can actually use examples. And we've developed clinical vignettes that go with all of these different stages where you can really talk to patients about their outcomes using these real world examples. This is awesome. I'm so grateful that you just shared that breakdown. I'm really excited about that tool. I mean, it sounds amazing. And I, I like that sort of as you were wrapping up that thought, you were kind of talking more about the clinical implementation for that. So I'm curious, this is kind of like a two-parted question here. So one, I guess I'm a little bit surprised that as the surgeon, you are interested in like taking on a role in like the questionnaire side of things, right? Like I always think of that as like the audiologist has to like deliver the questionnaires. We do the speech recognition testing. Do you feel like that's common among ENTs to like be more interested? I mean, no, I'm sure you guys are interested in the bigger picture and how the cochlear implant is impacting their life, but specifically in gathering that objective or it's, I guess it's objective and subjective data from the patient. Yeah, yeah, no. They make fun of me and our program that I'm like a secret audiologist. So this kind of goes <laughs> along with all of that. That was my secret dream was probably to be an audiologist and I just end up being a surgeon. But no, I mean, I think there's, there's more and more people kind of interested in this, right? Because we don't want to do a surgery on somebody who is not going to get much benefit. You know, and it's taking someone to the operating room is a, a serious responsibility, right? There's a lot of weight on your shoulders. There's complications. Things can happen. And so, I mean, we certainly, we want to make sure that patients have a cl one clear understanding of the potential outcomes, 
And that kind of dovetails into a little bit of expectations. And also that they know what they're getting into and, and they know the potential benefit and that this patient's most likely going to get a benefit. And that's kind of what some of our upcoming research is kind of discussing of kind of predictive models for using this kind of staging system and, and our instrument to kind of see, can we use it to kind of help with the cochlear implant evaluation process. Got it. So the way that it's currently being utilized, do you see it as more of a tool that we would use sort of at the in the candidacy stages to get a, a sense of their expectations? It sounds like the questions are more geared towards like current situations. So I guess it could be utilized pre-implant and post-implant and you can kind of monitor their progress with all of these different domains. Um, but I'm curious how you see it currently being utilized and it sounds like in the future it can be more of a, uh, a comparison to other metrics as well. Yeah, so this is I mean a major problem in uh, research in general, right? It's the implementation, right? So you develop all these things, and how do you actually implement them clinically so they actually impact an individual patient who's sitting in front of you? You know, it's it's a major hurdle, and implementation science is a an area a area of interest of mine and many other people out there. And it's kind of that the next step of how do we kind of create evidence and then implement that evidence. So currently, you know, at our center, we're using it in a comprehensive fashion. Um, we are using it um, uh, on, on the, on the cochlear implant evaluation side to kind of um, um, starting to use it more and more, I should say. Um, I, I, I'm using it um, on a very regular basis because I can calculate all these things just by looking at uh, response patterns sure. uh, on, on the uh, instruments. But yeah, so I mean, so I think from a uh, pre-implantation standpoint, the wording of the instrument is such that someone can complete it, whether or not they have a cochlear implant. We kind of really worked on the wording to say, if you do not have a cochlear implant, please answer how you answer with your hearing aids or without, Mm -hmm. you know, or if you don't use hearing aids without your hearing, you know, we kind of, we kind of massage the wording. It took about 18 versions of it to get it where we, we were happy with it and patients understood what we were actually saying. So yeah, so we can get patients pre-operative ability, right? For all six domains, we have normative data for 705 cochlear implant users. We have the staging breakdown. We have the score breakdown. So we actually can look at patients, how they score on the CIQOL 35 profile and then say, look, you, you, while your speech recognition, let's say, may be pretty good, you're not functioning that well, right? Or the hmm. opposite. You could say, look, you're doing really well with your hearing aids right now from a functional standpoint. And gosh, we'd be lucky to get this score with our cochlear implant. You know, and, and we're working on more predictive models for that. And, and we have a, a lot of uh, kind of um, technology coming out that's going to be coming out of our center in the near future to help other centers kind of ease you know implement this with more ease and develop kind of app and web-based um, um so it's very easy to use for any cochlear implant center to kind of adopt it and not have to kind of you know calculate these scores by hand and things like that so there's a lot of them coming out but we can use those to kind of have those conversations with patients you know and, and kind of again using real world examples and not say well you know you have you have a az bio plus 10 of 20 you know and the average score is this you know, which is kind of, it's hard for patients to really understand it. And we've done some hmm. cognitive interviews with patients and it's not their favorite thing is discussing these things. That, I mean, some patients like it, the, the word recognition, because they think of it like a math test. We're like, well, I got 20% right then and I got 70% <laughs> right now. I can, I can fathom what that means. But I mean, they don't know that that doesn't really kind of correlate with their real world abilities. And so the patients we've kind of talked to, well, they love the staging system and discussing outcomes in that manner. and then. The other side is kind of the exo. So using it as kind of what is their baseline functional ability. But then we've now developed and psychometrically validated um, the CIQOL expectation instrument. And we did that by actually converting every item in the 35-item profile to an uh, um, expectation-based question or saying, like, I will be able to. Hmm. So changing just the wording slightly to kind of get an idea um, because you know you talked earlier about the uh, you know the work that uh, Sandy Prentice was the uh, senior author on, and you know from a, a CI audiologist standpoint, realistic expectations is the most important thing beyond you know audiometric testing that yeah. um, that makes uh, an audiologist kind of recommend uh, cochlear implantation for a patient. But the reality is we don't have a way to really measure what, or we previously didn't have a way to measure what patients um, you know expectations were. Right. We have these generalized conversations 
And then if they told us what their expectations were, we didn't have a way to say whether or not that was realistic or not, right? Yeah. I mean, we kind of, we all use our personal experience and there's sure. a ton of variability from audiologist to audiologist of kind of, and, and you know, physician to physician of, of, of what, what realistic expectations are. So this instrument, by, so we converted every item. So that means that every item correlates and corresponds with the CIQOL 35 profile instrument. So when patients that fill is it so out, cool. I, did, I, I didn't realize this uh, expectations tool. Yeah, yeah. So, so basically, you can look at it, and we can actually, using our normative data for 705 cochlear implant users, we can actually say, look, you are way off, right? You are in the fifth percentile <laughs> of think how you perform, right? And you are, or you're way under. You know, you you, you should expect a lot more from your cochlear implant. Sure. And yeah. The important thing is we're not saying we're not predicting anything for these patients. But we're just providing patients the data. We're saying, look, 80% of patients score at this point or higher, right? And we have these, we've published these, uh, and we have a new manual that's going to be coming out very shortly, um, where it actually kind of, it has distribution curves. So you can take a patient, go on to it, look at their score and say, look, I know this is what you think you're going to do, you know, but gosh, only 20% of people perform at that level or higher. And so you can actually use the uh, uh, expectations instrument to kind of, one measure their level of where their expectations are and then kind of maybe modify it as needed um, based on our, our kind of our previously published normative data. That is really cool. That's a really exciting tool for us to use. I mean, you're so right that we have these very general conversations with like our clinical expertise and our gut feelings about how we feel someone is feeling about their cochlear implant. So yours, I mean, this isn't even a metric I even really thought about how much more objective it could be uh, and how helpful that is as a counseling tool. And you're exactly right. These questionnaires, they're almost always a jumping off point for more conversation. And I just think having this as a jumping off point for conversations about expectations, for conversations about you know outcomes and how things are moving along, and then using that to target certain skills and rehabilitation is just such a, a needed uh, tool. And I'm really, really excited about that. That's really cool. Yeah. And it, I mean, and again, once again, you know, you can use the staging system with it. And so you can say, look, a patient's in stage one, you know, and then, you know, but the, the chances of moving on and we're, we're kind of publishing more data on kind of the stage progression and the, the predictive ability of early of a pre-CI uh, functional stage on, on how predictive that, that might be able to be. So we have some exciting stuff, but again, you know, but just going away from the uh, pre-CI kind of uh, clinical visits, moving over to monitoring patients post-operative, you know, it's a great way to monitor when patients have plateaued, when their performance has plateaued or, you know, they have not demonstrated early benefit. Um, we, um, uh, have some, uh, once again, some, some more data coming out that kind of shows the really, the, you know, the huge, how hugely important early benefit is for these patients. And if, you know, they haven't benefited by a certain time period, then gosh, it does, it's a pretty grim outlook for these people. So it, it kind of, it can be used for kind of a, uh, kind of, a, a wide array of, of, uh, of, uh, uh, kind of, uh, I'm sorry, I messed my words up. Uh, it can be used for a, a, a kind of a wide uh, variety of uh, applications, kind of in the cochlear implant world in the post uh, period as well. So, um, yeah. Oh, did I lose you? Your voice kind of faded out, and now I'm not oh, hearing gosh. you at all. Oh, there you okay, are. Okay, I can hear you now. I think I lost <laughs> my signal. Yeah, what was the last thing you heard? Sorry. No, it ended. It ended perfectly on a thought. Um, okay. and I have something, I have something I want to put there. So yes, I, I completely agree. And I think what, so I don't see adults really anymore in the cochlear implant space, but when I did before something that I felt like I had to deal with, not all the time, but pretty often was, you know, an older adult patient who's, you know, four years in with their cochlear implant and they're like, you know, this thing, it never helped me. I don't even know why I did this. Like this isn't really doing, providing me much benefit at all. And then I can go back to like a year ago in my visit note. And it's like, they're very excited about all of their progress. They're doing really well. And I'm like, I've got to go back into my visit note and like, look here, you were so happy like a year yeah. ago. What are you talking about? So I think having, you know, a, a, a number even, you know, like the, or you yeah. know, more, but, more so than that, but, those specific subcategories. Yeah, and I mean, we're hoping to get very, very granular with this kind of with the kind of the um, uh, technologies we're kind of working on uh, with our, some folks at MUSC. 
is to kind of go, you go item by item, right? Every question in our instrument, you should be able to go back in time and say, look, I know you're not saying you're not getting much benefit, but remember before your implant for item five on communication, this is where you were and this is where you are today, Mm -hmm. right? So you went from never being able to do this to sometimes that's not, maybe not a home run, but you know, I I think there's a lot of reinforcement. Um, But it's also, you know, discounting is a, a, a term that's commonly used in this in this world where people kind of discount their prior benefits. So we, I think we see a lot of discounting in cochlear implant patients uh, uh, over time. Absolutely. And I think also when people are making the decision whether to move forward with like a bilateral cochlear implant, having that kind of a comparison can be a really good motivator and reminder of where they were. People forget how much they were struggling pre-implant all the time. I see that all the time. Like, you're doing so much better now. You just don't remember. But you're so right. Pointing back to the previous measurements is going to be a great tool to help people remember those differences and all of the progress that they've made. That's really, really cool. Yeah, it may not convince them, but at least, yeah. you know, uh, probably better that we have some data. Yeah. Awesome. Um, I So maybe switching gears here just a little bit, uh, thinking more about the cochlear implant team and kind of how that functions for you, uh, even when it comes to utilizing a tool like this, like where do you see, you know, which members of the team would be responsible for, you know, you know, asking the questions for the questionnaire, uh, assessing the responses, keeping track of those numbers and then, you know, maintaining those conversations. I get as a team, we're hopefully all on the same page. Here's the progress this patient is demonstrating. Here's how, like how they feel about their progress. Um, I'm curious how that, you know, kind of takes place for your team specifically. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a struggle even for the teams that develop these things. I mean, it really is. I think, you know, ideally, right? You have a patient who's comfortable with technology. You can send them the instrument before their visit. They can complete it at home or, you know, while they're waiting in the waiting area and it's scored and it's available for the clinicians, you know, from the time that that patient's there. The issue is when you, and that's an ideal world, right? So one, not of all, all of our patients are comfortable with technology. Um, and two, they may not follow our instructions, hmm. um, uh, of completing them. So, uh, so that, that would be the ideal situation. And that can be done. You can have that automated through, you know, REDCap and other 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 ways. And, and again, this is kind of the, uh, an area we're kind of focusing on of, of the implementation side of these instruments for long term. Um, but, I mean, you know, having your front desk people, you know, uh, have them say, look, anybody, what we do is say anybody who has the word cochlear implant attached to their visit or seeing these providers who only see cochlear implant patients, just give everybody these instruments. Just kind of have them. You know, we, have, we give them a stack. We make sure it's filled to the top. Um, that's never empty, and kind of can always give them the uh, uh, the instruments. Now the problem there is that it's just hard to score on the spot. You know, I mean, sure. maybe you have to kind of know what you're doing. Some items uh, are reverse scored, um, so you have to kind of keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have automated versions of it, but they're PDFs and those are electronic. So if you have iPads available. It's a way you can actually very quickly you can pull up these PDFs on iPads and you know patients just touch touch along and you know they they'll automatically score it for you. Um, but it, it, it being completely honest, it is a struggle. You know, it, it is a, a constant battle. You know, before surgery, we try to get everybody kind of a packet ahead of time that they filled out, they bring in that's filled out. Um, for a while, we actually were requiring patients to complete a packet and return it to us before we were scheduling for um, evaluations. We've kind of gone away from that. We thought it was kind of a, a barrier that was probably unnecessary. Um, but it's, uh, it is. It's, it's a constant, constant battle to get, get, get data. Sure, sure. And I mean, it's it's nice because the questionnaire doesn't sound too overwhelming. And it does sound like, like I mentioned before, like these are good jumping off points for other conversations. Um, and, you know, it's not like the questions are so specific that I feel like people could have, you know, specific stories that come to mind when that situation has come up for them. Um, did you mention before like a, a global, like a 10 item global? Yeah, so I mean, it's kind of like... Um, uh... Yeah, we, we were kind of conflicted on our research team about the development of the global. I knew people would want it. Uh, so, but at the same time, we put so much work in developing, you know, to ensuring that these individual domains were unidimensional constructs and we kind of did all this work. So it seemed kind of silly and it's not, and it's not psychometrically valid most of the time, 
to just say, okay, now total all the scores and that's the global score. So sure. what we actually did was kind of another step. We took the 35 items, we did a whole another set of kind of factor analysis and um, psychometric analysis, and we created a 10 item global from those 35 items. So it was kind of like a something in between there where we weren't like just kind of giving in and going against all of our strong psychometric work we did to create these domains, but it was also something that was available. It was, it is psychometrically valid. Um, I think it's, it, it's nice to use. It's 10 items. It, it, it's quick, um, but it's not, you know, there's no domain specific uh, data there. Right. And, and I think what we're going to find, the more we look into using these instruments is we're going to have some people who might be doing amazingly well from a communication standpoint, but they're struggling from a social and emotional standpoint, mm, right? They yeah. haven't seen that same progression. And that's probably means we need to provide more comprehensive care to these patients, right? Maybe our psychology, psychi- psychiatry uh, colleagues need to get involved um, in these patients when we identify because you think about somebody who's been kind of socially isolated for a long period of time due to hearing loss and then okay they have hearing now and then it's like all right now just go back into the real world that may not be the case for everybody yeah you know i mean they might have that ability but they may not be applying that ability to the as much as they should and so i think that's you know the strength of the uh the profile and there's also you know the, it, the staging system only works for the profile you know there's no global staging system um uh so it, i think there's a lot of uh, i always recommend using the profile it's only 35 items if you compare it to like you know the nciq which has been commonly used you know mm-hmm. that's 60 items mm-hmm. uh the ssq um is you know is, is also quite long i think it's 49 items if my memory mm-hmm. serves me correct um, and that doesn't really give you any information besides kind of speech quality, spatial sound, you know, so it doesn't really give you any of those other domains that are important to cochlear implant users. Um, so I, I say, well, yeah, it's 35 items. We estimate it takes about five to six minutes to complete for patients um, that uh, I always recommend kind of doing that. Yeah. I, I think it's great. You guys offer the global option, but I agree. I think the staging system is such a cool and unique tool for, you know, maintaining and monitoring progress and keeping, you know, setting like oral rehabilitation goals through that. I think that's really cool. I'm curious, have y'all done any, I mean, I don't even know how, like, this is maybe like actually a dumb question, but I don't even know, are you connecting at all? You know, the data we've used for so long to monitor these outcomes has been speech recognition testing, right? So are any of these stages related to certain speech recognition scores or, you know, AZ bio and noise scores or like, is that even a metric that y'all care about? Or do y'all see this more as no. this like quality of life specific kind of purpose? Yeah, no, no, it, it's really, I mean, I, I, I've, you know, uh, someone one time at a meeting said, I don't care about speech recognition scores and it's not true. You know, I think they're very valuable. They provide, uh, they are kind of measuring what we are trying to improve, right, at the, at the core level. But that's just kind of the starting block. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, the, the analogy I like to use is there's, um, there's really strong evidence that um, the, uh, architecture students, so students who get A's in architecture school are less successful than the people that get B's in architecture school. And that is because the people who are A's are kind of by the book. They know everything. They know everything. But the people who are get the B's are probably, they think, are more creative. And they're better at actually applying the principles of, you know, architecture in kind of novel ways, right? And so they actually become better architects. So I think that it's just a good example to think about the speech recognition school where it's like, yeah, you know, that F student in architecture, architecture school is not going to be a great architect, right? (laughs) You know what I mean? The first thing is 0% word recognition is not going to be a great, you know, cochlear implant performer, right? And not going to be your all-star. But it's like, it's that how you apply that speech recognition ability in the real world that matters, right? Mm. No one lives in an audio booth. It's, that's just the first step, right? So getting a good speech recognition score, I wish all my patients, right, had the highest speech recognition score. Um, But that's just kind of, that gives you like a pass to then use it in the real world. So it's just kind of a first step. And it's consistent with kind of the WHO's ICF model for hearing loss. I mean, it's kind of, it's very consistent um, with all of that. But, you know, what's, what's really incredible is, you know, we have uh, some data coming out. If you look at, you know, we, you, if you model out patients based on their preoperative staging, uh, where they start off, they, 
patient show kind of different paths from the CIQOL. But then if you take the people who are, you know, differentiated based or stratified based on their uh, preoperative uh, CIQOL stage, and then you look at those same patient speech recognition scores, they're like exactly the same on average. Hmm. So while you have these people who have end up uh, start off on various uh, different you know, functional abilities and end up with very different functional abilities, when you look at their actual speech recognition scores, pre-op to post-op, it's almost you can't tell which is stage one, two, three or four. So it's really uh, it's really interesting to kind of look at. So, it, it, you know, I think it, it's important. It, obviously, we want everyone to have the highest speech recognition score possible, but it's just part of the picture when it comes to kind of the cochlear implant outcome. That makes sense. It's still something we'll utilize as another measurement, but I, I completely get it. And that's kind of what I expected you to answer, right? Like I was like, I think it's a dumb question because I myself don't really see how it connects here, but cool, cool. So that's awesome. I love that as a tool. I'm really excited. Now, keep in mind, I only work with pediatric cochlear implants. So I'm curious, are you guys trying to figure out a way to model this for parents to answer about kids or maybe educators? Yeah, you know, there's a vet Sejas in Miami is doing some really wonderful work with kind of developing new proms for different age groups and children. I mean, I, adults, I have the easy job, you know, they're kind of, they can all respond, right? Or most of them can respond to you and can fill out their your own questionnaire. I mean, kids is just, it's a completely, you know, a different animal. And it, Absolutely. And, it's just, you know, and, and she's an excellent job of kind of breaking it down by different age groups. And when parents respond, when the actual patients respond. So I think there's a lot of excellent work kind of being done and needs to be done in that area because, you know, I mean, I think the idea of expectations is, is incredibly important when it comes to the parents making kind of early life decisions for their kids. That makes sense. Well, hey, maybe one day in the future, I'd love to see that tool to utilize. Exactly. Yeah, maybe I'll say I'd, lo- I'd love to collaborate with somebody on that one. I don't think I have the energy to kind of start from scratch again. But uh, yeah, I'd be happy if anyone out there wants to collaborate. I'm happy to provide some advice. You're just now hitting that finish line. I don't know that you want to start and sign up for another race. Exactly. (laughs) Cool. Okay, jumping back then again to kind of the cochlear implant team. And I do think, you know, or... Uh, you know, I'll leave it up to you. We could talk a little bit about the cochlear implant team or we could talk. I remember another presentation I've seen from you before. You talked a little bit more specifically about hearing aid related speech recognition outcomes for people and how they might not line up with what we expect from someone's unaided performance to their aided performance. I know that's, is that like an area of research you are still interested in and digging into? Yeah, I am. And again, this is kind of one of those areas. I don't know what it says about me, but I find it fascinating kind of when these things are, are said in public and are, are what I was taught as a resident that are just absolutely not true. So maybe I'm a <laughs> contrarian. But, you know, I remember it in residency of looking at audiograms and looking at speech recognition testing and saying, yeah, you know, this person, they, they have a you know, NU6 score of 70 percent they'll do they'll do fine with their hearing aid you know or or 80 or oh wow look at that they're 40 they're gonna do terrible with the hearing aid but like the question was whether there's any evidence for that that's kind of what we started to look at with some of that kind of work we were doing and and basically what we found is that there's extremely low correlation between patients and so i think terminology is important here so i call it earphone so you know earphone is kind of headphone inserts and that's kind of you know what we do on a routine, you know, what you all do on a routine basis for kind of you know clinical audiograms and, and clinical uh, speech recognition testing. And then you know unaided, I consider kind of sound field testing without anything in the ear at, at a consistent level, you know, sixty dB. And then aided is kind of what the hearing aids in. But what we found was you know from the earphone condition to the aided, extremely extremely low levels of correlation, right? But meanwhile, we have patients all the time you know, out in the community who get fit with hearing aids and they never actually perform any speech recognition testing with the hearing aids on. Audiologists don't on a routine basis until they're kind of bottoming out and they have to be a candidate for a cochlear implant, right? I mean, that's the only time that aided word recognition is really done is when someone's undergoing cochlear implant evaluations. And so there's really very low levels of correlation there. Now, now Terry Swollen, and we've published a paper on this since that kind of shows, yeah, you know, if you kind of look at a receiver operator curve, there's kind of a level you hit, right? So uh, Terry's 60-60 criteria, 60% on earphone and 60% pure tone average that someone is most likely going to be a cochlear implant candidate. 
or should it be seen for a quick limit evaluation? But kind of, there's a lot of gray area in between there, right? It is, yeah. We've had patients who surprise us 76% on kind of their NU6 earphone scores. We then tested them with their hearing aids in place and they just bottom out. Yeah. And just to clarify, this is like with like appropriately programmed hearing aids. These are like to target. This is like the best case scenario. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Kind of. And then like for, for one of the studies, patients, if they weren't fit the target, they got fit the target and went home for two weeks with their hearing aids and then came back and that this is the, the result. And so, I mean, it's pretty eye-opening, but it's something we kind of, you know, on a, and on a routine basis, we kind of say, oh, and I still hear residents say it all the time. And from a surgical standpoint, you know, our academy guidelines for acoustic neuroma hearing outcomes, it uses earphone word, Rick. And so it, we're very guilty as well. But no, I mean, so I think we've kind of looked at this in our cochlear implant evaluation population and kind of the hearing aid population as well from some clinical trials. And it's pretty striking. You know, uh, it's tough. There's a few physicians and people who kind of really want to push cochlear implantation who've kind of tried to get me on board with, and and I'm happy to help with kind of trying to change audiologist practice. But I mean, that's not my spot, right? No, I don't think any audiologist wants a surgeon coming in and telling them how to do their job. But I do think it makes sense to routinely perform, you know, aided word recognition testing. You know, well, I've talked all about this, you know, quality of life and proms and and just as an aside, you know, patient self-reported communication abilities also don't correlate with their aided speech recognition with their hearing aids. We, we've published all that as well. But, but as an aside, it seems that if you're doing it for cochlear implantation, you should do it for all of your hearing outcomes, right? So if a patient has a hearing aid in place, you know, I know there's limitations to, you know, needing a booth and time and everything like that. But if maybe just the patients who are struggling with their hearing aids and not loving them, just doing a 25 word list, you know, NU6, CNC, just to kind of get an idea of how they're performing. I think, you know, a lot of audiologists would be very surprised at what they find. Yeah. The first time I heard you present on this research, that was when I was shocked and I had in my mind, this guy is an audiologist's surgeon. <laughs> like, like what surgeon is interested in like hearing aid, speech recognition, te- like this, it just blew my mind in the first place. But even more mind blowing than that was the results that you all found. And I can't imagine that the majority of listeners are specifically cochlear implant audiologists because it's such a niche within a niche, right? But I do think a lot of them out there are doing a lot of hearing aid work. And I think it's such a helpful reminder. And again, I don't think, sure, you don't have to be the one to force anyone, but this is like really compelling data, right? And I think other than questionnaires, there isn't a ton of like outcome data for hearing aids that we collect, right? We don't really do too much aided testing with hearing aids because it's not a really good metric of anything. But this speech reception testing could be a really helpful metric to help understand, are we actually helping them with these devices or not? And if not, is a cochlear implant a better option? Right. Or, you know, there's lots of new technologies for middle ear implants and implant. You know, there's other things out there. Or just saying, look, something's wrong with the programming of this hearing aid. Or maybe you need the next model up hearing aid, right? So, you know, so I mean, I, I think there's a lot of decision trees. But unless you have the data to make the decision, you don't know you're just going to have an unhappy hearing aid patient, right? Exactly. Who's just not really that happy with the performance. And, and maybe that's all you get. And then maybe that's where it stands. But I think having just the more data would be really helpful. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm really grateful that you're doing that work too, because that is such a common misconception is, well, this was your performance before your hearing aids, you're going to do about this well, probably even better with your hearing aids. And that's just certainly not something we can say as objectively true. The data just doesn't support that. Okay, so we're coming up on the about the end of our time. But I did want to ask you one other question when it comes to cochlear implant quality of life. So let's break it down with a final example. You've got someone who comes in there an adult in their 60s with a gradual hearing loss, you know, it's got a sloping configuration, we'll say like moderately severe to profound. And they come to you and they say, Dr. McCracken, should I get this cochlear implant? Is this going to help me? What does that conversation look like to you as the surgeon? I know what it looks like for me as the audiologist when a patient asks me that, but I'm curious when they come to you, how do you approach those kinds of conversations? Are we assuming they meet like a beach recognition? Yeah, they're a candidate, right? They're definitely a candidate. Maybe they're not like the most like 0%. You definitely need this candidate, but they're a candidate. Let's say they're a 40%er. By the way, you know, 
these conversations are going to get more difficult, right? As the criteria have expanded for cochlear implantation, absolutely, there's going to be a lot, far, far more nuance with you know noise testing and people in that kind of gray area as CMS expands. There's going to be these conversations are not going to get easier over time. No, but I mean, I, I think having a clear understanding of what they expect to get out of it, what kind of environments they currently interact in right are they are they someone who kind of just sits at home and doesn't really interact much what do they want do they want to get out more so really kind of what are they expecting from the cochlear implant again using the data from the ciq well and then kind of looking at the conversation of what they want to get out of it not about performance expectation but what they hope to gain from their life and then you know i obviously am biased but again using their baseline ciq well scores to kind of guide the conversation, right? To look at it and say, look, gosh, you know, know, if someone's performing really poorly and noise, and even with kind of just a few listening partners, we say, look, you know, most people get to that level with their cochlear implant, right? You can kind of give percentages, but you say, look, but if they're kind of saying, look, I'm doing okay, I'm struggling in very large crowded environments, and I can't see everybody talking, well, you know, I think we have to be realistic about the limitations of cochlear implantation. And we have to be honest with people and say, look, very few people develop that capacity, right? I mean, that those are your really your all-stars. And you might be one of them, but here's the breakdown of the numbers and the percentage. And I think, you know, we're really spoiled, Dakota, like of where we are in cochlear implantation right now. You know, you and I trained in eras where cochlear implants basically always existed. Sure. Right? I mean, we weren't <laughs> part of that. I think we we're kind of like the second or third generation of cochlear implant clinicians where kind of the first people were just trying to get any sound awareness, right? Sure. The second generation, we're just trying to get that bump to kind of just a little bit more. And now we can be snobs and talk about the limitations <laughs> of cochlear implants and what, you know, so I think it's, it, it's, we're really spoiled to be kind of to have these more nuanced conversations, but I, I'm hoping we're getting to a point in developing the data needed to kind of have these nuanced conversations. And as the criteria expand, we can kind of put real guardrails onto what the potential outcomes for cochlear implant users are. So... Yeah, not a straightforward answer. But. No, 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 that's great. And I, I love because that's that's exactly how I see this tool that you all have developed being utilized is for those conversations and not just saying, well, you know, based on my opinion and, you know, how long you've had your hearing loss for, have you worn? It's like, I can, of course, still have those conversations, but now I have a metric where I can say, well, look, you're probably going to be in about this category and we would expect you to make this much progress. It's just so much more helpful to have a tool that can support those conversations and give someone a more objective look at what their potential is. So I I just think that's awesome. I'm so excited for this tool. Uh, Would you mind as we kind of, you know, wrap up here, uh, if people have any questions for you, how they can get in touch and where they can get access to, is it, is it safe to call it the CIQOL? Yeah, yeah, yeah. CIQOL, yeah. The, we, we tossed around a lot of different names. But yeah, CIQOL is what we ended up on. So my email address is just my last name spelled correctly. It's uh, M-C-R-A-C-K-A-N <laughs> at M-U-S-C.edu. A lot of people put E-N on the end or M-C-C. It's M-C-R-A-C-K-A-N. Our research team, you can you know, also reach us there. It's just C-I, quality of life, all one word, at M-U-S-C.edu. And the website is just, you know, HTTPS, you know, backslash, backslash, colon, whatever, education.musc.edu backslash CIQOL. And that'll bring to our website, you know, it has more information about the instruments, it has kind of uses of it. Soon we'll have a, a nice, really pretty manual, kind of a user manual, but download the instruments, scoring manuals are all on there. Uh, we have German, Arabic, and French also wow. available on there. So we have uh, other nine other languages uh, are, are awesome. currently underway. But folks, it's really exciting. Yeah, international folks, we're kind of being pretty strict with the cross-cultural adaptation process. So we're not just letting people just kind of translate it and just go ahead and use it. We're kind of having them follow some guidelines that have been set up. So yeah, it's wonderful to see collaborators from across the world. And, and we're very spoiled also in, in the United States that we have kind of speech material. Because a lot of these languages don't have validated speech material to test patients. So they're really reliant, very excited about kind of having a well-validated Brahms. 
Awesome. Well, Teddy, it has truly been an honor for you to be on here. When you guys inevitably develop the next tools, or if you, there's ever another research topic, or if you just want to come on and talk about more of the the surgeon's perspective on the cochlear implant process, I'd love to talk to you about your thought process through a surgery at some point. I think that'd be so cool to hear more about. I'd love to get you back on. But thank you again for joining me. It's been an awesome conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Dakota. And that's all for today. Thank you so much for listening, subscribing, and rating. This podcast is part of an audio course offered for continuing education through Speech Therapy PD. Check out the website if you'd like to learn more about the CEU opportunities available for this episode, as well as archived episodes. Just head to speechtherapypd.com slash ear. That's speechtherapypd.com slash E-A-R.